The message that I have today is, I think, foundational. So one of the beginning places that we go to. And the question I put before you is, what is a human being? What is a human being? And that means you, and that means me, of course. And I think that this question is something that a lot of us presume to know the answer to. So, well, of course I know what a human being is. Just look at me, look in the mirror. But what are we really? You know, and what, what do we have the potential to become? And what's uh, not our potential? What does the Bible say is what's important, isn't it? What I want to talk to you about today is sort of, actually not. I'm not going to talk to you about what the Bible says. You might think, well, that's kind of weird. Why would he give us a sermon in a church setting and say what the Bible doesn't say? Well, I want to walk you through some answers that folks have come up with to this question. What is a human being? And what does the Bible have to say about it? So, if we break down that question, what is a human being? I think there are other questions that people want to know the answer to. Is a human being a soul, a spirit soul that's encased temporarily in a physical body? Is the spiritual soul good? You know, is it naturally good? Whereas, you know, some of the bad stuff that we see going on in this world is because the flesh is not good? There's this battle going on in between? And what happens when people die? You know, we, we look, and you've all been to a funeral. Maybe you've been to an open casket funeral. Maybe you've been to a graveside service. Uh, the material body obviously dies. And it disintegrates into atoms and molecules. Dust returns to dust. But does the spiritual soul live on? And if it uh, lives on, does it suffer consequences? Does something, anything happen to it? Does it pay a price for what it did in the flesh? Does it reap rewards? Can it, it experience suffering? Can it experience bliss? And finally, if all this were true, where does it live? So what is a human being? And what does the Bible say? Do you know? Do you know what the Bible says about these kind of questions? Do you know where to look in the Bible? What I'm going to do is in the subsequent weeks is go over the scriptures that relate to answering the, those kind of questions from Scripture. And I'm going to flash a bunch of them up on the screen here. I'm not going to look at them all for sake of time. And uh, you'll, you'll see what I mean when you see the, uh, the slide I've got. But let's get back to this question. And I want to ask you, what do most people think the answers to these questions are? And worse, what do most people think the Bible says about these because what people think the Bible says is not necessarily the same thing as what the scriptures actually have recorded in them. So what people teach, what people assume the Bible says, doesn't really match the actual words of scripture. No, sadly not. And it's a serious problem. And I think it's a fundamental problem. It's a serious question. 
and presented it somewhat as the beginning, you know, one of those beginning points you can start off asking questions about, try and find answers. What are, what are people? What am I? There's a lot of false teaching out there is what I'm trying to get at. We're going to kind of go through some of that stuff so that you're kind of forewarned, far, for, <laughs> forewarned and forearmed, that you, you know what some of the arguments are, you know why they're there, because it, it leads to false teaching. And false teaching is serious business because false teaching about what God is actually saying has bad consequences. It leads to bad things. It's not just bad thinking. It leads to bad actions. I put it to you that, let's see the next slide. I put it to you that uh, false teaching leads to doubt. And when you see things in God's word, well, that doesn't jive with what I've always been taught. Wait a second. There's a problem here. There's a contradiction. Is this really the word of God? Can I really trust God? What does that lead to? Doubt leads to disobedience. Do I need to obey God? I mean, I'm not quite sure who and what he is. And disobedience leads to some bad, bad, bad results. Possible permanent death. So it's a serious issue. And I think that the, you know, the, the um, area where it affects us and how we live is in between that doubt and disobedience. And we want to be careful in that, in that area. And I think that, you know, for the most part, the people in this room are, are on top of this, but everybody's starting off somewhere. Some people have been doing this for a long time. Some people have not. So when I talk about false teaching, what you find in this world is that many people boldly proclaim that the Bible teaches what? Well, boldly people proclaim that the Bible teaches that each human being possesses an immortal soul that lives on after death. And that's, you know, pretty much standard material for most people. I actually had a call. Someone wanted to visit here and uh, they were asking about stuff and they asked him. It usually didn't happen. They asked me about, well, what do you guys think about this? And she asked about the spirit that lives on. And I told her what the, what we, what the Bible teaches. And she said, oh, uh, no. And she hung up and want to come because that's just kind of like a given with a lot of folks. My purpose today is to walk through and review with you how the false teaching of the immortal soul has come to the point where it is just accepted as, well, that's just true. And that the Bible, of course, that's what the Bible says. I'm going to show you, hopefully, how that came to be. So in some ways, what you're going to hear today is a bit of a history lesson, but it's about the history of teaching and the history of this particular truth. Go with me back to Genesis 3. If you think about it, history begins sort of in Genesis 3. <laughs> but I'm not going to just go to biblical history. I, I tend to bring in a lot of different sources, but let's start at the beginning. Genesis 3, of course, is when you've got a situation where You've got human beings there in the presence of God, in the garden. God's given some instructions. Do this, don't do that. Okay. There's something else going on in this scenario, isn't there? There's, a, there's another being. There's another way of looking at things. It says actually in verse 1, now the serpent. Ooh, so there's something. Hmm. There's a serpent there. And it says that 
The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. So there's something in the, in the garden with human beings that's tricky. The word means, it comes from a, a root word that means smooth. So in some ways, the serpent is scary, crafty. He's a smooth operator, I think. Now, when you meet a smooth operator, if someone says, so-and-so, they're a smooth operator, do you trust them? Yeah, smooth operators, you don't trust smooth operators because they're slippery. But drop down to verse 3. Actually, I'll read verse 2. Um, well, Satan asks a question, verse 1. Did God really say you must not eat from the trees in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we can eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And you must not touch it or else you'll die. So verse 4, I want you to zoom in on this one. Because verse 4 is the answer of this crafty, smooth operator. And the answer is, oh, <laughs> you will not surely die? Come on now, that's just crazy talk. You're not going to die. And I looked into the, the words there. You know, I kind of like to do that, as you probably know, dig down into the words. And, and the Hebrews kind of says, you're not going to die, die. Just, it uses the word die twice. Well, so you're not going to die, die. It's something different. So here I think we see the lie about the idea that you're not really going to die from the very beginning. Now, jump, jump over to John 8, verse 44. Jesus here is speaking, and he says this. He's talking to a bunch of uh, people who are giving him a hard time. And uh, I think it's Pharisees and Sadducees, but I, I, I'm not sure that it's, it's uh, clearly spelled out. But they're people that he's in disagreement with. And in verse 44, he says this to them. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And I put it to you that what we just read in Genesis 3 verses, uh, verse 4 is the original big lie. You will not surely die. Next slide. So let's go now and look at how human beings have worked with this idea of do we not die? And we'll take a look at the traditions of human religion and philosophy. So I picked a Greek philosopher there and he's pondering and thinking and that's where a lot of this stuff comes from. Traditional human thinking. I, I, assume that it's carried on from the time of, of Genesis in the same way. And traditional human thinking is that the human, human being is a soul, a spiritual essence, if you will, that's housed in a body, kind of like where I started off in the intro. And we have a body, and it can be seen, it can be touched, it can be smelled, it can be heard. Um, but then there's a part of us that's a soul, that's a spirit, or modern folks like to say, a mind. That's not visible. You can't measure it, and you can't poke it, and you can't feel it, and you can't smell it. 
It's not visible. It's not measurable. But that soul or mind or whatever, that's the real you. Okay, that's part of how human beings process this question. And at death, a very large number of people believe that at death, these component parts, you know, the flesh and the spirit part, okay? The body dissolves, the soul lives on, but in a different realm, in a different realm. And sometimes it's heaven, sometimes it's Valhalla, Nirvana, the singularity, reincarnation, all kinds of different ways that this plays out. And all this stuff, human thinking, is a mixture of truth and error. Remember the tree? The tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is right and what is wrong. Go to the next slide if you would. So this idea of immortality is not a biblical idea. It springs first and foremost, I believe, from the, the big lie. And then it's fully developed in human philosophy and religious thinking and so forth. It's not something that you just read in the Bible and walk away saying, oh yeah, that's what the Bible teaches for sure, for sure, for sure. And we're going to go through and look at why that's not the case. All right. Um, it is not the obvious conclusion that a person draws from reading scripture. It's an ancient idea. I kind of put it forward as the, one of the most ancient ideas of human thinking. It is uh, embedded in the traditions that we pass down from generation to generation. And it is a, an assumption. It is an assumption. And a false assumption leads to false interpretation, leads to false conclusions, which lead to false teaching. And as I put before you before, my position is, and I, I can walk you through this, is that false teaching leads to doubt, which leads to disobedience, which can lead to some serious consequences. Now, I've put all these false things out on the table, all right? You want to hear a little truth, though, right? You say, I, I come here to hear truth, don't I? I'm not here to just hear, you know, false teaching and and you know, going sifting through false teaching. So let's take a look at the next slide. And what I did here is I put together a little graph of some, well not a graph, a chart, of some key points. And uh, then I put the scripture there, and we're not gonna go to the scriptures, we're not gonna read them. I'm gonna save that, we're gonna do that later, at a different date. And what I've done is then I've made sort of an assessment here. We've got Bible teaching, oh you can't see that one because that's the tree. Uh, we've got Bible teaching, the scripture, and then my assessment on how that racks up with human tradition. And if you can see my assessment. Is it on certain points, human tradition agrees with scripture, and on others it disagrees. So it's a mixture of good and evil, a mixture of right and wrong. Okay, so what does the Bible tell us? Well, the Bible tells us that human beings are mortal. Dust to dust, from dust you are made, dust you will return. Genesis 2 verse 7 is a good example of that. We have a spirit component, which is added to the human being by God, and that helps us in a variety of different ways. It helps us to understand things. Um, the material body dies and dissolves. 
Well, let's take a look at these. I, I guess I should have done this as we went through. Um, so let's, let me back up. Uh, humans are mortal. Okay, well that is one where human tradition and the Bible disagree. Because human tradition says, no, we're immortal. Okay, so the next one, I can't read it very well. Humans have a spiritual component. Uh, that's one where human tradition and the Bible agree, right? Um, the next one is the material body dies and dissolves. Genesis 3, verse 14 is a good reference there. Well, that's where human tradition and the Bible, they're in agreement, yeah. Um, the spirit component returns to God. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. That's right. That's in agreement. Okay. Um, the disembodied part is not alive. So the spirit that returns to God is not alive. Hmm. Now I've given you some Bible references there. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5, Psalm 146, verse 4. That is a position where biblical teaching and human tradition disagree. Okay. We can be raised to new life. 1 Corinthians, whole chapter 15. I made a new category there. Because it's not just on, off. This is actually where it's real fuzzy. And so on that point, right, we can be raised to a new life. Bible and human tradition, it's a mixed up confusion. The next one, uh, spirit beings are no, sorry, uh, spirit can be joined to a new body. Again, totally confused. And then the final point, uh, spirits are no longer subject to death. And that's one where human tradition kind of agrees with what the Bible says. The final point uh, I put up there was between death and resurrection, there is nothing. And on that point, human tradition and Bible teaching disagree. So why did I make this chart? Why did I go through this you know, kind of laborious process? My goal is to show you that human tradition is a mixture of things that are right and things that are wrong. But like a drink of water, you know, if you have a 12-ounce glass of water and you know, a single ounce of strychnine, well, it's mostly good, right? Right? I mean, it's 11, 11 parts good, one part bad, right? Must be good. You gonna drink it? I hope not. I hope not. So, that's sort of my assessment of, of how the, the, the main points work out. Now, I'll send you that chart if you want. Let's take a look at the next scripture. So, let's talk about the big switcheroo. How did this idea of an immortal spirit essence that lives on after death, uh, where did, how did it become accepted as Bible truth? Because the, if the Bible doesn't say that, how is it that it becomes a, the teaching that is the most recognized supposed Christian teaching or biblical teaching? How did that happen? How did it switch around? Well, to answer this, I'm going to have to walk you through some history. So I'm going to go way back to a guy named Herodotus. And I, I picked him because he's the first one who talks about these issues as a matter of history rather than presenting it as a, as a myth. Okay? So this guy, Herodotus, Greek historian, goes back to 484, well, you know, the mid-400s BC. Right? So this is um, about 500 years before Jesus' death. Right? Uh, here's a quote from him. Because they were asking these questions back 
you know, long time before Jesus came on the scene. <coughs> he says the Egyptians were the first that asserted that the soul of man is immortal. And this opinion, some among the Greeks have at different periods of time adopted as their own. Then I gave you the book reference there where you can find it if you want. So what he's saying is, okay, well, you know, we have all these Greek philosophers, they're running around, they've got these ideas about immortality. They just picked it up from the Egyptians. So it goes way back. I think it goes even further back than the Egyptians, but here's a point where we can pluck it out in historic writing, okay? Uh, let's take a look at the next slide. So, Greek philosophers, right? Um, there's lots of them. They have all kinds of crazy ideas. The one that's the most influential, particularly on this subject of the immortality of the soul, is this guy named Plato. Now, he's a little, little bit later, of course. Um, he is, mm, I guess that's about 400 years or more before Christ. And he was the best known for promoting the idea of the idea of an immortal soul, the idea that we have a rational mind that lives on beyond us, okay, and kind of presents it in a philosophic way, you know, as if it's rational, reasonable conclusion. And he mentions it in a variety of places. The one I picked was the Phaedo, although it's in others. And here's the quote. He says, the soul whose inseparable attribute is life will never admit of life's opposite. So what he's saying is, well, opposites can't be the same. You know, life cannot be death. So he concludes, um, death, let me, let me go back because I, I want to say it again. The soul whose inseparable, at, inseparable attribute is life will never admit of life's opposite, which is death. Thus, I th he, he thinks he's proving something by saying this, thus it is shown to be immortal, and since immortal, indestructible. Do we believe that there is such a thing as death? Well, to be sure, I mean, we all see, we see people die, right? And is this anything but the separation of the soul and body? And being dead is the attainment of this separation? When the soul exists in herself and separate from the body, and the body is parted from the soul? That is death. Death is merely the separation of soul and body. Kind of sounds like what most people believe and teach, doesn't it? And it's this dude. He's not getting it from the Bible. No, no, no. Not at all. Now, his, his ideas and his teachings really took off because he was a really good writer. He wrote elegant phrases and, you know, he could just put things in a way that was just masterful and people loved him. So he was very influential. And he influenced even, you know, Jewish people, uh, Jewish philosophers and thinkers, and the one that tends to come up in a situation or a conversation or topic like this is Philo. And so these ideas started percolating out into the Jewish world and all that kind of stuff. But then something happened. Next slide. Boom! The Christian church bursts on the scene. And so it's kind of centered there in Jerusalem, and so the arrows are going out into the Greek and Roman world. Zzz. Suddenly, all these biblical ideas are blasting out into Greece and Rome and so forth, and they really hadn't, hadn't been part of anything that they were up to. And men like Paul were tasked with taking the truth of God 
from the heart of it in Jerusalem and so forth and taking it into the Greek and Roman world, okay? And uh, he was very successful at it, very successful at it. And this meant that God's truth through men like Paul, Titus, Silas, Timothy, people like that, God's truth and God's teachers were rubbing shoulders and sometimes butting heads with all kinds of Greek thinkers, Greek philosophers. And don't ever underestimate the amount of attention that the average man on the street paid to the Greek thinkers and philosophers. They didn't have TVs, they didn't have radio, and they didn't have uh, a lot of the entertainment that we have. And when they wanted to be entertained, they, they, they loved listening to people talk. They loved it. So go to Acts 17, verse 17. Let me give you some, just a couple of places in Scripture where this is somewhat mentioned or alluded to. Acts 17, verse 17. And this is the sequence where Paul is in Athens. And a lot of times you'll see uh, this section of the book of Acts characterizes Paul and the philosophers. Because a couple of uh, types of Greek philosophy are actually spoken of directly here. So Paul is visiting Athens, and it's one of those cities in Greece. And it was sort of uh, the big, big idea center. It's sort of a New York, New York, New York of, of Greece, you know place where all that happened and people went and, and did their thing. So let's pick it up in Acts uh, 17. So he, Paul, was reasoning in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now, the, the culture at that time worked such that uh, people who wanted to be teachers, people who wanted to get uh, an audience, would go out into this marketplace and they would preach and they would teach. And so you could buy some bananas, you know, you could, you could uh, buy yourself a rabbit for dinner and you could listen to some philosophy. It was a full day, you know, and if you liked what the guy said, you could throw him a few coins in his basket and that was a big part of people's day. The marketplace of ideas, the marketplace of stuff. So here he is, Paul's out in the marketplace and he's talking with all these people and a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. These are a little different from, you know, your Plato kind of guys. But this is Paul interacting with these philosophers, okay? This is common. This is what people did. And he began to debate with them. And so some of them asked, well, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, well, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. So this is kind of like more like where the creme de la creme of these people would go and talk about their ideas. Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. Now verse 21 says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So this is the world that the Church of God kind of grew up in, started in, where these kind of ideas were floating all over the place. They had to interact with these ideas. One more, go to Colossians 2, verse 8. Colossians 2, verse 8. And uh, this is a verse that I think kind of shows you people had to address these issues. And Paul writes to the church here in, in uh, Colossia, and he says... He's talking about some 
some false teachings. And he's talking about some bad ideas that had crept into their congregation. Okay? And no, I don't think he's talking about the questions about the immortality of the soul. But he's talking about people in the congregation who'd been affected by these popularized ideas that were floating out there and they were picking up as they enjoyed the entertainment and the marketplace and stuff like that. And in verse 8 he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So I put this to you as a, an observation of what people were dealing with back in those days, even in the local churches. People had to deal with ideas. Now, I know, you know, putting up a slide with a picture of Plato on that, you might think, well, this guy, he's, you know, who does he think he is, a history teacher? Well, today I suppose I am. But I put it to you that we all have to grapple with big ideas all the time. Philosophical assumptions about reality, they're coming at you all the time. And they're coming at you in ways that are very deceptive and very smooth and easy to accept and appealing. And you need to be on your guard. Now, I think that probably most people here are on guard against the immortality of the soul. But there are a lot of other ideas that you need to be on guard against. That's a different message, but I put it to you that considering these things and knowing where these ideas come from and how do they bubble up in our society is worth your time. Next slide. So let's talk about how these human traditions got mixed in with Scripture. Okay? How did, how did this crazy, crazy, you know, cocktail of beliefs and ideas get put together? And then how in the world did it get accepted as biblical truth? If what I say is correct, and it's not there in Scripture. How could it be? How could it come to pass? How could something so outrageous happen? How did the belief in an immortal soul, born of accepting a big fat lie, come to the point where people not only accepted it, but assumed that it was a truth taught by God's word? Because it's not. The transition from biblical statements about life, death, and human beings um, to the acceptance of an immortal soul was a long, slow process that took centuries. And we're going to look at some of the highlights, if you will. Remember that chart I put up there? You know, I think the, some, one of the ways that error gets into life, gets into our minds, is because there's a little bit of truth in there mixed with it. When you look back at what Satan said to Eve, well, some of what he said was true. So, let's take a look at the next slide. The long, slow process. Let's start way back, 160 AD. So this is about 100 years after Paul is executed. Justin, and he was a philosopher turned Christian. Um, I, I, he had enough false teaching in him that I'm a little suspect of this guy. But he did say, he, he says something here in this quotation it shows you that you know, people did not necessarily accept this idea of the immortal soul right off the bat. 
He says, as I'll quote this here, but our Jesus Christ, being crucified and dead and having ascended to heaven, reigned. And by those things which were published in his name among all nations by the apostles, of course he's talking about scripture, there is joy offered to those who expect the immortality promised by him. So this kind of sounds like a guy who recognizes that he doesn't have immortality, but he's expecting to receive it from God, which is a very different kettle of fish than saying, well, I am an immortal soul, and I'm going to live on you know, regardless, you know, whether I'm good, bad, or ugly. <clears throat> and you know, maybe he's playing off a scripture like in uh, Timothy where it says, God alone has immortality, right? You can look that scripture up on your own. That's what the Bible says about that. God alone has immortality. He can give it to other people, but he alone has it in and of himself. Next slide. So zoom ahead another 40, say, years, and this guy comes on the scene. His name is Origen, a very weird dude. Very weird. Um, actually got to the point where he wanted to avoid uh, sexual temptation, so he cut him off. You know, just a really weird guy. Uh, but he was a very influential teacher in some circles, and he was a, a, a dyed-in-the-wool Platonist, you know, follower of, of the teachings of this guy, Plato. So here's what he says. Souls are immortal. So he's not even trying to prove it. He's just saying, well, obviously, souls are immortal, as God himself is eternal and immortal. You know, he's not proving anything. He's just basically going off what Plato said. And I kind of, I tried to point out, well, Plato didn't really prove anything. He just basically picked it up and said it. So, um, you know, this guy, Origen, openly professed to be, as he says in his own words, a Platonist who believes in the immortality of the soul. See him linking those ideas together? You know, as a believer in what Plato wrote, I believe in the immortality of the soul. But of course, I'm also a Christian teacher. So I'm going to put all this stuff together because this is true and this is true and we have to find a way to make it all work. All right, next slide. Around the same time, there's this guy and he's just another example. Uh, Tertullian, very influential Christian teacher, apologist, etc. Um, and he says this, for some things are known even by nature. That's kind of an old-fashioned way of saying some things are just so obvious you can just see them. You know, they're obvious just by what you can see in nature. The immortality of the soul, for instance. Are you kidding? In what way is the immortality of the soul obvious by just looking around you and you know, deducing from logic? It is not. Okay, on. The immortality of soul, for instance, is held by many. I may use, therefore, the opinion of Plato. So he's, he's, well, let me prove it to you. Plato says so. When he declares, every soul is immortal. Okay, that's the kind of logic and reasoning you're getting. Because we say so. Because it seems like a great idea. And this man, uh, Tertullian, was another person who was, you know, he was not, op not, not just open about what he was doing, you know, trying to reconcile or bring together uh, Plato and Greek thinking with the truth of the Bible. He was proud of it. Proud of his efforts to bring together what they would call the best of human thinking with Christian truth. I mean, truth is truth, right? 
If Plato came up with something that's true, then it's got to be in sync with the Bible, right? They've got to work together. Well, it's based on a gross assumption that what Plato said was true, which we don't really have any basis for, do we? He just said it. And he picked it up from the Egyptians and kind of just picked it up as a tradition. Now, okay, so these are guys that are kind of going off and flying off in the deep end and draw, drawing in all this crazy human tradition and Greek philosophy and stuff. Let's take a look at the flip side, because there were other biblical teachers who condemned this, this change or drift away from the faith once delivered, and right up until the time of the Council of Nicaea. Let me give you an example. Next slide. Um, the matter was still very undecided. Here's, a, here's an example of a guy named uh, Arnobius. And see, it's about the same time. He's a little later, 280, 337, which takes you kind of up to the big uh, Council of Nicaea. But this guy was a church teacher, writer, okay? Not as famous as the other guys, but worthy, he's you know, worthy of note. And he says this, okay. <laughs> he's writing to try and correct people who, as he says, were being carried away with an extravagant opinion of themselves that souls are immortal. Will you lay aside your habitual arrogance, O men, who claim God as your father? So you Christian guys out there, so he's speaking to, and maintain that you are immortal just as he is? Which he characterizes as arrogant. So the teaching about the immortal soul was up for grabs. You know, it was a matter of debate. It wasn't settled science. It wasn't settled theology. It was people were talking about it. It was not settled. Clearly, it's not as plain as the nose on your face, is it? Because it's not there in the Bible. The, that's kind of the problem. And that's why there's so much, you know, dancing around the issue, because it's not there in Scripture. But people see this kind of writing from people like Plato, and it's very appealing. And as I tried to draw out, well, if th th that's got to be true. Well, we must find a way to make this sync with what we find in Scripture, because truth is truth, right? But it's not. Okay, so the next step, next slide, this discussion moves on to what I'm going to call dogma, right, which is accepted truth. And some stuff happens. I mentioned it a little earlier. There's this big council, the Council of Nicaea, and that's where Constantine wades in on the whole thing. And one of the results of the Council of Nicaea is that the power of the Roman state is now entwined very closely with this form of Christianity that's taken on life. And now the muscle of the Roman state, and they had a lot of muscle, people with swords, you know, men with guns and big, you know, Big muscles. Well, they had swords and big muscles. So the muscle of the state was now there to enforce standardized doctrine. Scary, right? What's interesting to me, though, is that even at this point, the teaching about an immortal soul is not adopted as an official teaching of the church. Okay? Uh, but what did happen is the power of the church is now in place to enforce correct thinking on particular matters. So these guys I put up here, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, they cover a big span of time. Okay? Augustine was a very, very uh, successful teacher of philosophy and public speaker. And he was also a student of, or you know, really into Plato. And his writing and teaching um, would have come out after the Council of Nicaea, 
okay? And he was, in my opinion, the most important in promoting the idea of the immortal soul and getting it to really be embedded in what became the traditional church, okay? He was just very good at it, very effective, convincing writer and speaker. And uh, after this guy, most people adopted the theory of the immortal soul as Christian. Partly because they didn't have Bibles that they could read. And so they kind of had to listen to people because people weren't literate then. So they'd listen to a guy like this. They couldn't check it out for themselves. Uh, Augustine was very candid about what he was trying to do, which is mesh Plato, Greek thinking, and Bible together. Then this guy comes along, Thomas Aquinas. He's just very systematic, very thorough at doing this. And he really kind of seals the deal in getting this teaching completely embedded into what became, supposedly, what the Bible taught. And like I said, most people didn't have a Bible. They were illiterate. If they were, if they were literate, they didn't have a Bible. So they had to kind of listen to these guys. And all these guys were doing was accepting the big fat lie. And people do that. They, they take an assumption and uh, the assumption here is that human beings have an immortal soul. And then they search the scriptures diligently to find verses and places that seem to support that view. And, you, you know, if you get into a discussion of this with people, that's what you're going to get. Oh, well, what about this scripture? But they're not clear. They're very vague. And they're also contradictory to very clear statements that the scriptures do make which I gave you a smattering of in the slide. And I'm going to give you more. I'm going to follow up with some follow-up sermons on this, okay? I tried to point out, I don't know how successful it was, that Plato never really proved anything. He didn't really lay out some logic or anything. He just basically said it and assumed, well, this is, this is true. It's an assumption. That's how a lot of people think. And, you know, we have to be careful we don't do that as well. Go to... Uh, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 20. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 20. When it comes to what human beings can derive and think of in their own minds, the answer is not much. What can be known about life after death based on human logic and reason and microscopes and test tubes and stuff like that? Next to nothing. And I think Solomon sort of hit on that. He writes in Ecclesiastes from a viewpoint of, you know, where you look at life in its physical, if you look at life as physical and material only, the answer is everything is vanity and meaningless, right? Kind of what Solomon's known for. Vanity of vanities. In Ecclesiastes 3, verse 20, he says this. Okay. Um, let me back up. Verse 19, surely the fate of human beings is like that of animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. Everyone goes to the same place. All come from the dust and to dust they return. Who knows? And how can it be known if the human spirit rises upward, the spirit of the animal just goes down into the dust? What he's saying is, from the human perspective, we have no idea. From logic, you know, reasoning, you have no idea. How do you know that there's anything good waiting for you? How do you know? 
from God's word. And so it's to God's word that we must go to look for the answers, not human traditions. You know what you know. The reason you're here today is because God's word. That's how we know what we know. And what God's word said is very, very different from human tradition and philosophy. Let's take a look at the next slide. So dogma actually gets to the point where it is imposed or will be imposed by force. They, they had a council. I mean, I mentioned the Council of Nicaea. We've looked at some of the other councils that, that have come up. And here's one that's about the immortality of the soul. The Lateran Council, the Fifth Lateran Council, Lateran Council of 1513. To me, it's fascinating that the immortality of the soul was not settled official doctrine for 1,500 years until after Jesus. Because if it's so obvious, what took them so long? Well, it's because it took 1,500 years of softening people up to get them to accept the big lie instead of the big truth. This is a quote from the Lateran Council, which says, Whereas some have dared to assert concerning the nature of the reasonable soul, the mind, the immortal soul, that it is mortal. We, with the approbation of the sacred council, do condemn and reprobate all those who assert that the intellectual soul is mortal, that the human mind, the human being, is finite, mortal. Seeing, according to the canon of Pope Clement, that the soul is immortal. So again, what source are we quoting? Who are we looking for for truth on this matter? We decree that all who adhere to this erroneous or like erroneous assertions shall be shunned and punished as heretics. So here I'm sorry to tell you once again that you're a heretic. And that can be a very scary position to be in. Because the punishment that was being talked about here is not fun. It is scary. Anybody who taught against the immortality of the soul uh, could be turned over to the civil authorities for punishment, severe punishment, usually painful and terminal. Next slide. So what do the scriptures say? What do the scriptures say? Um, interestingly enough, around the same time as the Lateran Council is, is out and, and making this proclamation about the immortality of the soul, there's a social movement that's happening in society. Society's changing in big ways. You know, as big as what we're going through right now in our society. Things are changing fast. Wow, you can hardly keep on top of it. That was what was happening in these days. And in those days, there was this thing brewing up. We usually call it the Protestant Reformation. Anyone not heard of the Protestant Reformation? Part of the Protestant Reformation involved a movement to translate the Bible into languages that the average person could actually understand. That's not what the Protestants were all about, but this is part of what was going on at the time. Well, let's take God's Word and let's put it in English, let's put it in German, let's put it in French so that the average guy can read it, see. And the two men most responsible for creating such translations are who? Does anyone know? No guessers? Okay, Martin Luther 
Let's go to the next slide. Martin Luther was one of them, and William Tyndale was the other. And we're going to look at these two guys, okay? So Martin Luther, um, I think these two guys, are very significant, very, very significant to me. But here you've got two guys, Martin Luther, right, and William Tyndale, who are intimate with the actual words of Scripture, such that they're taking the Bible and they're tearing it down word by word in Greek and they're translating it into English or German so that you can understand it. So they are intimate with what is there in the scriptures. All right? That, that's what's happening. I'm not putting this man forward to you as a beacon of truth. What I'm saying is he's a great example of someone who was intimate with the scriptures. Okay. And I think it's highly significant what these two men thought about the immortality of the soul, having become so intimate with what was actually there in God's word because of their work translating it. And both of these men could see the true biblical statements about the nature of human beings and death and resurrection. So Martin Luther, he said a lot of, he was very pithy, okay? <laughs> He had a real turn of phrase, okay? And he's famous for the 95 theses that he, he you know, put up on the big bulletin board, and, which were basically a call to discussion. Let's discuss these matters. And he had to defend them, or he wanted to defend them. He wanted to talk about them. So here's a little, a little snippet from uh, something he wrote in defense of his 95 theses. This is in 1520. Um, and he says that the idea that the soul is immortal, right, is, in his opinion, as among all these endless monstrosities in the Roman dunghill of decretals. Decretals is decrees, okay? So <laughs> he, was, he was not a politically correct kind of guy. <laughs> and as I mentioned, he's very pithy and he had a way of saying things that I think a lot of people found somewhat off-putting. Okay, this is what he said. The idea that the soul is immortal is just crazy talk, is what he's saying. And he later pointed out in a, a book he wrote about the book of Ecclesiastes, he said this, Solomon judges that the dead are asleep and feel nothing at all. For the dead lie there, accounting neither days nor years, but when they are awakened, they shall seem to have slept scarcely one minute. So that's from a commentary he did on Ecclesiastes. So as I mentioned, here's a guy intimately involved in digging through the scriptures and translating them into a different language. And he sees, yeah, no, that's, that's, no, that's not what the Bible says at all. Here's what it says. Here's some of what it says. All right, William, William Tyndale. Let's take a look at the next slide. All right, handsome guy, right? Handsome. It depends what you like, right? Okay, so William Tyndale. Very uh, famous, basically, this guy is responsible for 85% of the King James Bible. Uh, they like to tell you that the King James Bible was written by a committee. No, he, he did most of the work, just this guy. Uh, brilliant man, again, intimate with the scriptures. I'm not putting him forward as a beacon of truth. What I'm saying is that when someone actually reads God's word thoroughly, they come to some different conclusions about the immortality of the soul. Here's a quote from William Tyndale. He says the, uh, that in putting departed souls in heaven, hell or purgatory, 
In doing that, you destroy the arguments wherewith Christ and Paul prove the resurrection. Basically, what he's saying is you make a hash of biblical truth. You make it all seem crazy and ridiculous. Remember when I showed you the chart and I showed you the green areas, which were confusion? People are terribly confused about those issues, which should be the most important issues on the table for people. But there's terrible confusion about it. Okay, um, and he says, um, you destroy the arguments wherewith Christ and Paul prove the resurrection. The truth faith puts forth the resurrection. The heathen philosophers, you know, guys like Plato and so forth, denying that did put forth that souls did ever live. They, they say there's an immortal soul. Then he goes on and he says, if the soul be in heaven, tell me then what cause is there for the resurrection? So here's two guys who really dug in, they knew the scriptures, and they kind of looked at it and said, you know, the, the Bible doesn't say what people think it says about the immortality of the soul. No, no, no. Next slide. So you would think, okay, these guys, they were, they were you know, famous, right? Very influential. Maybe they turned the course of history. You know, and people finally saw the light and they turned away from a false teaching and accepted biblical truth. That'd be great, wouldn't it? It did not happen. That's not what happened. <coughs> I mean, I've, I've read about these men and uh, kind of what happened was people, particularly with, with Luther, kind of said, you know, Luther, <coughs> some of this stuff, that you're, you're coming up with. Um, it's never, never gonna work. You know, we, we can't take this and you know, take it out to Paducah and it, people aren't gonna buy this stuff. They're not gonna like it. And there were a couple of other things where Luther came to some different conclusions which agree with scripture. And he was told, look, don't go there. Let's stick with the stuff that you know, was really important, you know, kind of, uh, cutting down and breaking up people's allegiance to the Catholic Church and all that stuff. And let, let's let sleeping dogs lie when it comes to the immortal soul and other things. And that's kind of how it went. Same with, with uh, Tyndale. Not as famous as Luther, of course. So the Protestant reformers, basically in a nutshell, who supposedly founded their teaching, sola scriptura, you know, based on scripture, uh, kind of came to the conclusion that the general population was unwilling to give up their traditional belief in the immortality of the soul. So we're not going to go there. We're going to just let that one be. And so the big lie, the big fat lie, that goes all the way back to the beginning, remains in place to our day as what is generally assumed to be biblical truth. You talk to a person who calls himself a believer, most of them, that's kind of what they think about the soul, the immortal soul, right? You talk to someone who's not a believer, they think that's what you think. And I've, I've been in that situation where I, I'll say something and I know I can see the wheels spinning inside their head. Oh, they think I mean an immortal soul. Because they just assume that's what I think. Because that's what most people think the Bible says. And it doesn't. 
The big fat lie is you will not surely die. You're not going to die, die. Go to Matthew 24, verse 5. And this is, uh, again, we're back to where Jesus is talking to the disciples. And they've asked him, what will be the signs of the procedure return? And they're kind of saying, what lays ahead? You know? And so he's giving them some pro- prophecy, if you will. And he talks about a number of things. And uh, one of the things that he says in his prophecy, and he says to the disciples over and over and over again is, be ready. Because people with false teaching are going to come. And they're going to be very successful. Here's just one of the many places he talks about that. Matthew 24, verse 5. He says, okay. Watch out that no one deceives you, friends. For many will come in my name. They will come in my name. As a representative representative of Jesus Christ himself. Claiming that I am the Messiah and will deceive many. Elsewhere he said, people will say to you, or they will say to me, Lord, 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 Lord. But what do they teach? Instead of the commandments of God, they teach the traditions of men. I'll let you look that scripture up yourself. What does the Bible tell us? Recap. We'll go over this in more detail. I'll give you a sermon on this later. The Bible tells us that human beings are mortal. They are material, dust. The Bible tells us that we have a spirit component added by God. We know that the material body dies and dissolves. Yeah. The spirit component returns to God. Yes. It is not alive and does not experience suffering or bliss. True. However, we can be raised to new life with a new body. Now, Plato talked about the immortal soul. And he just said, well, it just is. We teach and we believe that you can be raised to a new life with a new body. Do we have any proof that that can happen? Do we? Jesus Christ was raised, was witnessed. 500 people, eyewitnesses, recorded in Scripture. I mean, if God was going to prove something, how would you like him to prove it to you? Writing a book of philosophy? Or demonstrating it to you? So we can be raised to a new life with a new body. Those who are raised in this way are no longer subject to death. Immortality is a possibility. And confusion on this matter is important to avoid because confusion leads to doubt. And doubt leads to disobedience. And disobedience, ironically, disobedience leads to missing out 
on immortality.